right, good morning. It's my privilege to be bringing the reading of the Word of God today. Um, and that's reading, like Michael said, is coming from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Um, and just to provide a little bit of context, uh, we're going to hear that King Herod is responding to reports about Jesus and his disciples. And that's specifically because in the verses preceding the section that we're going to be reading today, uh, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles with power to perform miracles and to preach the arrival of the kingdom. All right, starting in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom." And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the end of the reading of God's word. If you would now please respond to the reading with our uh, response in faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And now I'd like to invite Ty Gregory up, who will be preaching God's word for us today. And actually, if you guys could remain standing, we're actually going to pray one more time just before we get this sermon started. So would you guys join me in prayer, please? Our Father in heaven, thank you for these people and for these ancient words. We know that without soft hearts and open minds, we're incapable of receiving your word. So we pray that you would awaken us to your word by making us alive in your spirit. 
You who make eloquent the tongues of children, refine my speech and pour forth a ray of your brightness, a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of our minds. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You guys can go ahead and, and be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, happy Sunday. Um, if I'm a new face to you, hello, my name is Ty. It's really, really nice to meet you. I might be unfamiliar to you because my wife and I are recent Denverite transplants. We moved here just over seven months ago from beautiful, sunny San Diego. Uh, we were there for three, year, three years while I was a student at Westminster Seminary in California. We moved here right after seminary for a job opportunity at Armadale Academy. Maybe you've heard of it. It's a, a private classical Christian school in, in Highlands Ranch. Um, this year I teach Latin, but in the past I've also taught Greek, history, literature, Bible, theology. Um, I also did a three-year internship at a church in San Diego that belongs to our denomination, which explains why I've been invited here to preach today. So if you're newer to, newer to Denver Prez and you're not as impressed with me as you are with Ronnie and Jason, like, don't worry. Don't worry. I am merely here to fill a void. Please come back again next week when our seasoned vets are back in town. Uh, I, I must say, though, like I truly am grateful to be a member here, like at this church. Ronnie and Jason just make Jesus like so compelling and so, so believable. And I so appreciate their vision for pastoral ministry and for everything that they do here at this church. And I am sorry that we will miss out on their wisdom today. At the same time, the Bible nerd in me is really excited to take advantage of their absence so we can explore the scriptures together. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up or turn them on to Mark chapter 6. Uh, today we'll be taking a detour from our series in Ephesians to explore Mark 6 verses 14 through 29. Now the teacher in me had to make a Q&A so you don't get lost in the middle of the sermon. So you have to be, if you happen to be the sermon note-taker type, you can find that in your bulletin. Uh, the questions are in order, so it should be easy for you to follow along. So let me take a guess at what you may have been thinking after hearing today's sermon text read aloud. Uh, what is he going to do with that one? Like, why did he select that text? And I get it. I get it. It's not exactly a go-to passage for preachers. But you know, like biblical authors are so careful in the way they craft their stories. They're like literary, literary artists who have captured the minds and imaginations of people from various cultures for thousands of years. So if a story like this is seemingly irrelevant, our task today is actually to discover why it's important. Now, some people would suggest that we read this text as pure history, okay? And if you do that, here are the conclusions that you might draw. And by the way, these are from published commentaries. I'm not making this up. Here's what some scholars say this passage is about. Number one, this text is about a faithful minister rebuking sin. Number two, this text is about the bad consequences of throwing really good parties. <laughs> Number three, this text is about how little God rewards his servants in this world. So clearly, my 
alone suggests that none of these conclusions are right, and that I would suggest that you not read this text in those ways. But if you're convinced you must have a purely historical interpretation of this text, let me give it to you in just one sentence, okay? Love triangle ends in the murder of the critic of that love triangle. But is that really the reason why Mark includes these events in his gospel? I don't think so. Here's why. If Mark's gospel was a movie, this scene would have been visually depicted as a, as a flashback. Now, flashbacks give us important background details that help us understand a, a crisis a main character faces. And so once we've seen more of their story, we suddenly understand why a character feels so conflicted about the crossroads decision he or she has to make. And that's exactly what is going on here. Uh, Mark has given us the backstory about John the Baptist so we can return to the main drama with greater clarity. So the question we need to ask is, what does Mark accomplish by telling his story in this way? And here's, here's my best answer to that question. Mark is drawing our attention to the devastating death of John the Baptist in order to prepare us for the news that death does not defeat the kingdom of God. Okay, let me say that one more time. Mark draws our attention to John the Baptist's death to assure us that death does not defeat the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at this text from uh, three different angles to prove that death is not a threat to the kingdom of God. We'll do that by reflecting on this text's strategic location, and then we'll look at this theme of Jesus's messianic identity, which takes center stage in this story. And then finally, we'll trace this theme of political hostility, which reaches something of a climax in this theme. Okay, so location, messianic identity, political hostility. There's the outline for you type A note takers. All right, let's explore the first of those three headings. Why do I say that this text has a strategic location? So listen to the two verses that immediately precede our text. This is Mark 6, 12 through 13. It says, so they, the apostles went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now skip over our section and go directly to verse 30. Verse 30 says this, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So did you catch what happened there? In verses 12 through 13, Jesus sent the apostles so they would heal people's diseases and invite them to repent. And Mark then interrupts that story about the apostles to interject this story about Herod and John the Baptist. And after telling us about John the Baptist's death, Mark then returns to the apostles' story as if he had told one nice, neat, simple story. So do you get it? Apostles, John the Baptist, apostles. This is a strange thing for Mark to do. Uh, especially because Mark is known for his sort of rapid storytelling style. He's like the opposite of the first grader whose stream of consciousness stories pour out of him on the car ride home, right? Mark is more like the reserved high schooler who reluctantly tells you about the facts of his day, 
right? So yet here, reserved Mark puts on his tabloid publisher hat, and he's now the inside reporter on this scandal. And if he had Twitter, Mark would have definitely been trending and leading all the retweets with this tantalizing story about a religious rebel and a shady politician. So why is Mark breaking with his natural, brief, and to-the-point writing style? Well, that's what great storytellers do when they're cluing you in to something that you shouldn't miss. And the breaking news that he wants all of us to know is that Jesus has chosen John the Baptist's replacements, right? That's why Mark tells us these two stories at the same time, linking the sending of the apostles with the death of John the Baptist means the kingdom of God movement is now transitioning from first-generation leadership to second-generation leadership. And it's going to be the apostles who will now be the ones who carry on the mission of God both farther and longer than its initial leaders. So the location of this text tells us that the kingdom of God moves forward despite the forerunner's death. Does that make sense? And this is where this story about John the Baptist and the apostles transforms into the story of God. Because God still partners with humanity to accomplish his goals. God continues to guide and even, mo- and even mobilize faith communities to participate and share in the kingdom of God movement. Though we don't have Jesus or the apostles visibly here with us to lead this movement, we do belong to the community that Jesus built. And the Jesus community is unique because it's open and receptive to the Spirit. And the Spirit uses the rhythms of the kingdom of God, you know, prayer, worship, communal reflection on the scriptures, eating the story of the gospel. The Spirit uses all of those things to help us embody divine love for our neighbor's benefit. So that's what the strategic location of this text tells us. It tells us that the kingdom of God expands and multiplies through new generations of leaders who are attentive to the Spirit's shaping of new Jesus communities. But what about this theme of Jesus's messianic identity? Let's read verses 14 through 16 one more time. Mark says this, King Herod heard of it, meaning Herod heard that Jesus sent the apostles in his name to represent his rule. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, no, he is Elijah. Another said, no, he is a prophet, <laughs> like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, he has been raised. Now, one of the main questions Mark poses in his narrative about Jesus is just exactly who is Jesus? Mark tells his audience exactly who Jesus is at the very beginning of his gospel. In Mark 1.1, he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the word Christ or Messiah, if you speak Hebrew or Aramaic, like Jesus did. The word, the word Christ appears in Mark 1.1. 1, 1. 
then it disappears until Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ almost nine chapters later. So from chapters one through chapters nine, we, as Mark audience, we know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's God's king over creation, but we're listening to Mark tell his story, and we're supposed to be evaluating other people's guesses about who Jesus is. In our text, there are three guesses about Jesus's identity. He's either John the Baptist resurrected, Elijah, or some other Jewish prophet. This is important because the language in this scene, it it parallels the turning point in Mark's gospel when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. Let me read it to you so you can just hear the similarities. In Mark 8, 27 through 29, it says this, Jesus asked his, his disciples, who do people say that I am, right? There's the identity question again. And they told him, John the Baptist, others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. So did you hear the same three guesses about Jesus's identity? John the Baptist, Elijah, some Jewish prophet. The only new detail we get here is that Jesus is the Christ. So Mark intentionally links these two chapters. That's the point here. He links together chapter 6 and chapter 8 to show that Jesus's identity crisis has been resolved. And it's not going to be some Gentile politician like Herod who discovers Jesus's true identity. Instead, it's going to be one of the apostles. Now, As soon as Peter makes this confession that Jesus is the Messiah, Mark's entire narrative shifts. After Peter's confession, we're told that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. In other words, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah triggers an explanation about what the Messiah came to do. According to Mark, the Messiah cannot be understood without two things. Number one, his suffering and death on the cross. And number two, his resurrection from the dead three days later. So this theme of Jesus's messianic identity takes center stage in this scene because the guesses about Jesus's identity uh, in chapter six foreshadows Peter's confession in chapter 8. And Peter's confession in chapter 8 prepares us to receive Jesus as the suffering servant on the cross. This is like so, like so important for us to understand, guys, because there are like so many rival interpretations about Jesus in the modern world. But every, every single version of them must withstand the test of the cross. But here's the problem. The cross is a confusing symbol. The cross is about shame and violence and even death. From the outside looking in, the symbol of the cross seems to approve of divine abuse. So how can a suffering Messiah actually become a symbol of hope for faith communities? And it's because the, the cross isn't about divine coercion, right? It's about self-donation. Jesus voluntarily gave his life 
as a sacrifice of love on the cross. His wounds absorbed all the evil you and I would ever commit. And by letting evil overwhelm him, Jesus exhausted sin's curse on the world. Even though suffering and death is central to the Christian story, death does not have the last word because God conquers evil with the resurrection life of Jesus. That's why death is not a threat to the kingdom of God, because Jesus defeated death itself by rising victoriously from the grave through the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. So what we're getting here is really an invitation to belong to the life-giving kingdom of God, to become actors in the story that God is telling about the world. And God's message is that he's reconciling the people of the world back to himself. God's message is about evil and death and injustice no longer dominating human life because the risen Jesus is here to make all things new. And when we become actors who lean into that script, we can become a community of healing and renewal in our wider public lives because finding ways to mirror and to breathe Jesus's own resurrection life into others is the purpose of the kingdom of God. So we've explored the strategic location of this, of this text, as well as this theme of Jesus's messianic identity. But what about this theme of political hostility? So throughout the Gospels, we're used to religious people resisting Jesus's message, right? That's because the scribes and the Pharisees you know, Israel's Bible nerds who have PhDs in Hebrew and who are like upstanding citizens in the community, in the Jewish community. These scribes and Pharisees are often presented as the main antagonists to Jesus. But Mark describes an unexpected team of antagonists that isn't as obvious in other gospel accounts. In Mark 3, the Pharisees become so provoked by Jesus healing a man on a Sabbath that they plot with the Herodians to kill Jesus. So other gospel authors mention the Herodians in passing, but it's much later on in Jesus's life, and their role is ambiguous at best, okay? But Mark uniquely highlights this early alliance between religious and political agents. This is interesting because the goal of this unlikely alliance between very conservative Jewish teachers like the Pharisees and corrupt Gentile politicians like the Herodians is not to murder Jesus, but to destroy him. Listen to what Mark says in Mark 3.6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus about how to destroy him. In other words, they don't just want to take Jesus's life though that's true. They want to neutralize the movement that Jesus has been building because they see it as a threat to their religious power and to Herod's political agenda. And what movement, of course, is that? It's the kingdom of God, right? By performing miracles, casting out demons, and forgiving sins, Jesus is forming a renewal movement around himself. He's helping 
the very people who have been hurt and neglected by their society, whether it's those who have been oppressed by Roman occupation or those who are the victims of the exclusive and stigmatizing religions of the first century. All of them are welcomed and cared for within the kingdom of God. When everybody else says no to social outcasts, Jesus says yes to them. But the Pharisees, they're not fans of this renewal movement. They enjoy the benefits on be- of being on top of the religious hierarchy, right? They like the way the religion has evolved to protect their interests and their status in the community. So to get the attention of the Herodians, the Pharisees present Jesus as a rival political threat to King Herod. And this is where the story ends, isn't it? Doesn't Jesus get mocked for being a failed king? In Mark 15, 2, when Jesus is on trial before Pilate, the Roman governor asks him, are you king of the Jews? When Pilate is standing before the crowd and offers to release a prisoner, he lets him decide between Barabbas, a murderer who incited a political insurrection, and Jesus. When they choose to release Barabbas instead of Jesus, Pilate asks, what should I do with the man you call king of the Jews? After they've decided to crucify Jesus, what do they put around his shoulders? A purple robe. Why? Because purple is a symbol of royalty. What else do they put on him? A crown of thorns. Why? Because he's a king. What inscription do they leave at the foot of the cross? Here lies the king of the Jews in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic so that everybody who walks by no matter what part of the Roman world you come from, can read and insult the person who tried to overthrow Rome's political dominance. Even the very last description we have of the chief priests and the scribes is this. They mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the king of the Jews, come down now from the cross so that we might see and believe. So ever since Mark dropped that detail about the Herodians in chapter 3, by the time we get to chapter 6, we know that this meeting about Jesus' identity among Herod's inner circle does not bode well for Jesus. Okay? If anything is certain about the Roman Empire, it's that it stomps out political revolution before it starts. That's what Mark is preparing us for. We're expecting Jesus to die after he has the attention, after he has Herod's attention. So Mark gives us this story about John the Baptist and Herod to prepare us for the state-sanctioned death Jesus will eventually suffer at the hands of Rome. So what I want us to gather from this scene is that we're supposed to expect a final clash of the kingdoms after reading this. I say this because part of Jesus' mission is to launch a campaign against evil itself. Okay, not evil people, but the very source of evil. In scene after scene after scene, Mark presents Jesus as the representative of one kingdom who goes to war with other rival kingdoms. Listen to the way Paul puts it in Colossians 1.13. He writes, 
we were rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, two kingdoms are at stake on the cross. It's either going to be the life-giving kingdom of God as the victor, or it's going to be the life-taking kingdom of darkness. And the resurrection proves that the kingdom of God wins. But who or what does the kingdom of God defeat? In 1 Corinthians 15.25, Paul says the last enemy to be defeated is death, because death is humanity's ultimate enemy. This is why Isaiah, looking forward to Messiah's victory, writes, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So the primary victory of the cross is Jesus' defeat of evil and death itself. Now, you and I, we live after this final clash of the kingdoms. We celebrate and belong to a Messiah who defeated death itself because things were not as they appeared on the day that Jesus died. What looked like the crushing and permanent defeat of the kingdom of God was actually its victory. Jesus did not give a concession speech to his rival on that day. No, he was enthroned and inaugurated three days later as a king over an everlasting kingdom of peace and righteousness. Though temporarily shameful, the death of Jesus reconciled the world back to God. That's what this text is about. It's about the counterintuitive wisdom of the cross, which says that death can actually give way to life. And the only reason this is true is because Jesus' self-donation on the cross is immediately followed by his triumphant resurrection from the dead, which means the resurrection of Jesus is a guarantee that evil is gasping its final breath. It also means that our future resurrection from the dead is on the horizon. And while we wait for this final consummation of life with God, Jesus is breathing his abundant resurrection life into us now through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what we need to do... Oh, did I go off? Okay. As a faith community that leans into the wisdom of the cross is to reimagine for ourselves and for others what life can mean in the Jesus community. Because political power isn't life, okay? Wealth just isn't life. Stability and security and status, like, guys, it's just, it's just not life, right? Life begins when we begin to walk the path of death. Death to self, death to greed, death to toxic relationships and unhealthy obsessions and abusive speech and every other form of life-taking injustice. Okay, because when that kind of death happens, we're walking with Jesus on his journey, not just to death, but through death, where we arise again with him in the very presence of God. And that's when a genuine Jesus community can emerge, one that is committed to the life, healing, and flourishing of our neighbors, Right? Because that neighbor who's considered undesirable by everybody else, he's the very one 
who's welcomed in as a guest of honor within the kingdom of God. And guys, this, like, this is who we are, right? This is our story. We are refugees who've been gifted full and complete and permanent citizenship within the kingdom of God. So let's be refugees who never forget their true home, who embrace their identities as the royal sons and daughters of God, who let the self-donation of Jesus define our meaning and our purpose in God's world. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you guys pray with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for this, this beautiful victory that we have in Jesus. Thank you for transferring us from the kingdom of darkness and welcoming us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We celebrate this newness of life that we have in him, and we ask that you would form us into the kind of people who share your generosity, your welcome, your life-giving love with others. Help us to be a healing community of Jesus in and for Denver. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.